So where I think I'll begin, um, the decision that I've made in the last half hour, because of the beautiful teaching that Robert did, that he'd gotten from the Dalai Lama, I'd like to start with that recognition that um, the Dalai Lama said when he said, uh, everyone wants to be happy, everyone wants to feel loved, everyone wants to feel connected, because I think we all resonate to that. We do too. That's why we're all here. I hope that what I would talk about tonight will really respond to the question, what in the largest sense are we doing here for this long period of time? What's the intention of practice? We have lots of levels of intention and maybe um, particular intentions for particular people. But really what binds us together as a group is that we all have a conviction that somehow what we are doing here, specifically the practices of paying attention and responding with tenderness, the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness, are really the paths that we trust will bring us to that place of being, of experience happiness and connectedness and feeling loved, feeling that there's meaning and purpose in our lives. Two things happened to me um, just in the last month that um, I'd like to tell you about. One of them is an experience that we may have shared. Um, I thought that the day before the 1st of January was an extraordinary day in terms of a worldwide spiritual consciousness. And what, what I did for that day is I watched... Um, um, public television all day long. And uh, they began in the morning from where the sun came up just after the midnight of the new day, the new year, the new millennium, somewhere in the South Pacific. And all day long, every hour, they switched along as the sun traveled around the globe, the uh, camera traveled around the globe, and all around the globe there were millennial festivities. And uh, what was wonderful for me, what I loved so much, was that all around people in different costumes who looked different from each other, who lived in environments that looked different from other environments, who spoke much of the time in a language that I didn't understand, sang about peace and happiness and the hope for it. Uh, the translations were all that these were prayers for peace and hopes for peace. And everybody, apart from the um, immediately recognizable differences, everybody didn't look the same all over the globe, did the same kinds of things. They all smiled and sang and danced and kissed each other and waved at the camera and looked like they were happy about what was happening. And it was so uplifting. It was the immediate um, uh, reflection of that particular teaching of the Dalai Lama that we all know that everyone everywhere wants to be happy. 
we all want to feel connected and loving. That makes us the happiest. I felt very uplifted during that day. It's as if the whole world had gotten together and said, this is what we really want. We want to share a planet of peace. And somewhere in the course of the day, uh, there were uh, there was uh, a commentator appropriately uh, in one of the in one of the segments where people were discussing the prospects for the the, the globe at this point in time, uh, offering the sobering reflection that one third of the nations of the world are currently in war. One third. It's an enormous amount. So there's an important balance to that. We could be the kinds of people that we're built to be, loving and sharing and hoping, taking care of each other, behaving as if we cherished each other. That was the practice that we did an hour ago. Behaving tenderly towards each other and instead often out of confusion and out of ignorance we hurt each other in quite terrible ways. Someone in the week after that sent me an email um, in which uh, uh, someone has uh, figured out what the world would look like if it were reduced in size from six billion to a hundred people. Have you seen that? Says, but of that hundred people where they would live and what different ethnic lineage they would be part of. It says, of those hundred people, 80 would live in substandard housing, 70 wouldn't know how to read, and 50 would be malnourished. That's a tremendous number. One would be just born, one would be getting ready to die, one would have gone to college, one would have a computer. But the biggest statistics, 80 wouldn't live in a substantive dwelling. When we make a meta resolve, may you have ease of well-being, we're really hoping that the world's resources will be shared so that people will be safe in where they live and housed and fed. So I thought that maybe we had many of us shared that event, which I felt so excited about, because I think the other part of Robert's teaching, of the Dalai Lama's teaching, was his response to the question, is there more love in the world now? I hope so. And I'm hopeful that as we pay attention to the truth of things, this is how it could be, and this is what people want, and this is still how we get into trouble, that seeing that, seeing both parts of that, will cause us to change our own hearts and through that change the world. Because it's so easy to make a mistake. The other event that happened to me in the last couple of weeks, um, as I had been away teaching a retreat for a week, and um, it had been a very intense and very wonderful experience, and um, I'd come home at the end of it and uh, not been sensitive, perhaps, to the instruction that we always remind each other of at the end of retreats, that we are all particularly sensitive at the end of retreats. 
And I went to a movie two days later, and the movie was called The Three Kings. And I won't tell you the movie, so it won't, so that you can see it yourself. But um, I thought it was extraordinary. Um, I was very touched by it. It's a really true story of an event that happened after the Gulf War, at the end of the Gulf War, still in that part of the world. And it's really a story uh, about how fundamentally good people, people just like you or I, could under certain circumstances, get so captivated by lust as to really do things that create a lot of suffering for a lot of people, or get so terrified and frightened that they do some terrible violence to other people. So you begin to see, I actually had to leave the movie. I was so overwhelmed and went out. This doesn't often happen to me. And I think what touched me the most is that these were regular people, not awful people. It could happen to any of us that we could get so captivated and so confused. I felt quite overwhelmed by it. The antidote to the overwhelm, after I went back in and saw the end of the movie, was... um, I went, to a, I went on that afternoon to um, a party. I'd been on the schedule. I didn't feel in a good mood to go to a party. But it was a party of several families getting together because of one of the children's birthdays. And so I went. And I felt, um, I, I, I worried a little bit about maybe I'll come to the party in a very demoralized mood, but you come anyway. And I felt um, very much warmed by looking around and seeing the spectacle of people loving each other. People I knew well loving their children, people I didn't know so well loving their children. I was very much inspired by the idea that the human heart fundamentally has that capacity to love and be tender. And I very much trust that what we're doing here together is trusting that capacity of the human heart that resilience of the human heart to look absolutely frankly at the suffering of the world, to discern the suffer- the causes of suffering in the world, and out of compassion and tenderness, which is part of our fundamental equipment, change the world. I think that's what we're doing here. What we do here is we pay attention to our mind, moment to moment, see all the stories and all the preoccupations and all the habits of the mind. Sometimes I think when I see the habits of my mind over and over and over again and see how over the years of practice they definitely have changed, but they're not erased. They just change and change and change. I'm very, very inspired by the truth of the fact that they change. I'm awestruck by how hard it is to change them. Something like um, altering the course of the Mississippi, sort of rock by rock, slowly. Mm -hmm. 
It is not easy. It is hard. It requires constantly looking at, constantly um, back to the drawing board and starting again. But here we are doing these practices of seeing clearly and uh, responding with tenderness. I actually would like to uh, um, submit them for alternative uh, names for the practice we do. Um, I like when we translate vipassana as seeing clearly. It really says exactly, I think, the point of practice. We, if we could see clearly, we would see what's true fundamentally, not only about the habits of my personal mind, my this particular mind that's grown up in the way that it has, but the truths about life, the truth that it's painful to be in a life, just to be in a body, in a life, in a relationship, in a world where everything is fragile and nothing lasts. That's painful. That's just true, though. That's not extra. That's what the challenge is for us all to meet. In the best of all possible worlds, we would have the challenge of how to address the truth of constant change. And the pain and the grief that that brings, because we are always losing what is dear to us, our hopes, our youth, our health, our relationships, we are always losing. Sometimes I'm so touched when people will talk about themselves or how they are in their lives and they'll say, I'm in the middle of a time of transition now. We are all in the middle of a time of transition, all the time, transiting from this morning till tonight, one way or another. Sometimes a more difficult time than other times. If we saw how much extra pain, the pain of suffering, we add in our own minds by the struggles we create extra around the truth of constant loss and readjustment. We saw the suffering that's in the world because of unrecognized clinging, unrecognized aversion, unrecognized confusion. That clarity, that wisdom, I think would so move us to compassion that the result of it would inevitably be that would be loving and kind. I think if we started at the other end, if we practiced kindness and compassion, so we could experience the ease of a peaceful heart that wishes no ill, a mind that's stirred up with the passions of ill will or greed. If we practiced tenderness, our own hearts and minds would quieten down. When they quieten down, we would see the truth of suffering and pain in the world and be rededicated in our decision to only manifest ourselves with lovingness and kindness. I think sometimes about 
mindfulness practice and metta practice as clearly being two practices with exactly the same goal in mind. And that sometimes I think of mindfulness as the practice of seeing the suffering in the world so that our hearts will be broken open into a place of compassion that responds with love. And I think sometimes of metta practice as the practice of seeing so clearly the possibility of the heart to respond with love that it buoys up the mind and holds up the spirit so that we then are able to fully hold the truth of the suffering in the world. And once we saw it, we would be, I am convinced, unable to add one more drop of pain to the world if we saw clearly how fragile it all is. This last week, um, uh, I'm sure that you all know um, that there was a plane crash right off Los Angeles and uh, 85 people, I think, 85 passengers, five crew, died on the way to San Francisco from Puerto Vallarta. And this experience happened for me. It happened last Tuesday. And um, I heard about it, and I thought about it a lot, and felt badly about it. It's one of those events that happens quite close to home, so you really feel it a little bit more than um, the plane crash that happened that very same day uh, off the uh, Ivory Coast, because somehow this one is nearer to us. It was not for a little while near enough to keep my mind clear. On Wednesday morning, I got up, I was driving over here to Spirit Rock, and um, came to my mind to be annoyed about a particular interchange that I had uh, had with a person close to me the day before. It was one of those things that came up in the mind, as they sometimes do, and I began to chew it over with a little bit of irritation and start to... Um, recreate the little story in my mind, and then he said, and I said, and he said, and I said, and, which is what we do. It's a habit of the mind to pick up something and then grumble about it and grumble a little more about it and then tell the story about it again. And by and by it becomes a grudge. And um, at some point, as I was driving over, I realized I was doing it. And um, I realized that by telling the story, I was inflaming that. And then in the next moment, when I had the possibility of choosing not to, I realized that I was choosing to continue, that it was kind of seductive to continue this little path of munching away on this personal grievance, kind of like a dog chewing on a bone. This kind of a very unhealthy habit of the mind to get intrigued with a lust or an aversion. It just is true. I imagine that's true of you as well. So I watched it as if the mind said, well, I'll just do that grievance a little bit more. I'll just... And then I drove over here and I thought, well, I better put that down. Here I... So I, I came over and 
I came, this is early on Wednesday morning, so a smaller group it comes to sit quite early on Wednesday morning. So we sat for a while, and mine comes down a little bit as we sat for a while. And then after I rang the bell and people began to talk, somebody uh, said, you know, so-and-so, and they mentioned the name of a person who actually is a member of our greater community here, a person who does a lot of retreats here, a person who had sat on the Metta retreat the week before here. And they said, you know, so-and-so's sister's two grandchildren were on that flight. They were six and eight years old. And all of a sudden it makes it real. The real people who I know are connected to so-and-so who I know. And someone else said, and this other couple that was on the plane, they mentioned their names, they were old friends of ours. They lived in Mill Valley. And as we talked about it, one of the people, the person who said that is actually a flight attendant. Flies quite a lot. This was a very quiet discussion of who knew who. And I realized that as we talked about it, that um, the tone of everyone's voice was slowed down. It's a kind of tenderness in the tone, as if we were touching something that's really very, very important. Um, there's a real truth to the fact that things are very fragile and very frail. Everything is impermanent. We expect lives to end eventually, but not now. Not our own, not the people who are dear to us. But in fact, all of our lives hang on a very fragile thread of viability from one day to the next, from one breath to the next. In that period of time, as our discussion became quite quiet, really tender, that's the best word I can think of it, I was aware that not only was my grudge gone, of course, but a sense of um, dismay in my mind for whatever amount of time I had spent nursing that grudge, the five minutes or ten minutes, one minute, a half a minute is too long to spend not loving. It's a very short life. Those are habits of the mind that catch us and ensnare us into something other than cherishing. But they're habits that we could change if we see them enough and are dedicated enough and determined enough. James said last night, everything hangs on intention. It is my intention to change those habits of my mind. Not out of um, um, anger towards myself, but really out of caring for myself. It's the best thing that I could do for myself. And I thought about um, how both the path of mindfulness and the path of loving-kindness, the path of paying attention and the path of tenderness lead ultimately to um, lovingness and compassion. I thought about the fact that the Dalai Lama said, uh, likes to say, 
My religion is kindness. I love that so much. That's such a plain way to say things. Actually, I thought about yet an even plainer way, perhaps. I uh, have a, a friend who I think of as being extraordinarily kind, and um, sometime last week, in response to something he had done that I thought was very kind, I said with genuine admiration, I said, you're so good. And he said, well, you know, it makes me really happy to be good. And I loved that a lot. First of all, he didn't protest. He didn't say, no, 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 I'm not that good. Everybody's good. He said, yeah, I am. He said, but it makes me happy to be good. I think it makes us all happy to be good. I think that uh, the Dalai Lama, as much as he has said, my religion is kindness, has also said many times, my religion is happiness. This is happiness practice. It's paradoxical a little bit to think about uh, that this is happiness practice that comes about through the clear recognition of suffering. Seems like it's paradoxical. But I trust, I really believe, that if we were awake to the pain of the world, and if we could stand it, then we would address it. And in the addressing, our lives would have meaning, and they would have purpose, and we would be happy. I thought this morning, and throughout the day, that all of the instructions had in them what I think is the essential, one word, essential, central point of this whole practice. I thought it this morning when uh, James was teaching about uh, our sitting practice, and then I thought it when Mary was teaching about walking, and I thought it again when John was teaching about eating. That uh, James said in uh, directing the attention to the breath, he said, as the attention rests in the breath, other things will be happening. There will be sounds, there will be sensations in the body, there will be thoughts in the mind. Choose to let the attention rest in the breath. Mary said, choose to walk in a way that really cultivates an attention that's more alert in the present moment. Don't go for a long walk. Pick the pace that suits you. Choose. John said, when you eat lunch, could you choose to really sense the chewing, sense the tasting, make a full appreciation of each moment? The word choose excites me enormously. It's such a statement of faith. It means we could choose. We could choose to focus the mind, to calm it down, to wake it up. We could choose to see more clearly. If we chose to see clearly more of the time, we would behave more wisely and towards a happier end more of the time. Choosing means we are not victims held captive by mind states. We're not held captive by the stories of our life. I had a wonderful experience a couple of years ago 
friend, my, a friend of mine told me about an experience she had in going to a weekend workshop with a particular workshop leader. It was not a mindfulness weekend. can't remember what it was. might have been a uh, journal writing weekend or something, a personal self-awareness weekend. And she said that uh, she was, it was not a silent weekend, and so they uh, talked at mealtimes. And she said after several meals, um, the leader of this particular technique of self-awareness, the leader of this workshop, said to her, um, I notice that you don't eat uh, any cooked vegetables. And my friend said, yes, that's right. And she said, why is that? And she said, well, when I was a child, my mother obliged me to eat cooked vegetables. And my friend who told me the story told me that the workshop leader thought about it for a few moments. And then she said to her, in a not unkind way, that was a long time ago. We don't need to be held captive by our stories. That, the stories make a difference. They really count. We are all the result of everything that ever happened, not only to us, but in fact everything that ever happened. But we're not held captive by it. We can choose. That is the great good news of the practice of waking up. I think about the words that inspire me are freedom and liberation. And I think what it means to me, freedom, is the freedom to choose. To say, this is what I feel like. This is the thought that came up. But I don't have to act on that. I don't have to do what that feeling is calling me to do. Nor do I have to entertain this impulse for a long time. I can say, well, that's a thought that's not wholesome. I think I won't entertain that anymore. There's a really uh, lovely image that's been in my mind for a few years since um, Ajahn Amaro taught it here on the very day that this uh, hall was opened for the first time. And it's such a wonderful metaphor for me. He said, if you want to go to San Francisco from here, you go, this is of course we're talking about if you want to come to, if you want to end up at happiness. But he said, we'll start with if you want to end up in San Francisco, you ride out to Francis Drake Boulevard and you come to Highway 101 and you take the on-ramp that says southbound and you go to San Francisco. He said, if, however, you make a mistake and you get on the wrong ramp and you find yourself going northbound, you're not obliged to go all the way to Eureka. <laughs> that you could get off at the very next interchange and get back on the highway and go to San Francisco. But we can learn to recognize, whoops, this is a mistake. That was unwholesome. This is not working. This is not mitigating in the direction of happiness for myself or other people. I don't have to do it. I'll stop doing it, and I'll do something else. Sometimes people who are not very familiar with vipassana practice, with mindfulness practice, and hear um, a beginning explanation of you just uh, of the idea of you one um, remains alert to whatever is arising, 
it sounds sometimes to people like alert to whatever's arising and not uh, engage somehow with what's ever arising, just letting it arise. I actually think we are engaged. With, we need to be engaged with what's arising. We need to be engaged so that it's not something out here, but something that we feel. Actually, I think mindfulness practice is the full, complete body, visceral, mind, heart, spirit, everything, awareness of what's happening. It is something that's happening in here, not out there. I think the part of it that says present for everything that's happening is exactly right. And then present for everything that's happening with a balanced awareness that then allows us to intend in the next moment for clarity, for balance, for ease, for happiness, which means really the effort, really right effort, the effort to say, this mind state, which I fully feel, appreciate, and feel the pain of, I now choose instead to be with my breath. It's more wholesome. It's calming. I don't have to engage with this. I can notice it. I can know it. I actually like sometimes to say, um, instead of mental noting, I like to say mental noting. Actually, mental knowing. I actually like to say mental, emotional, heart, complete knowing. And then deciding. And then choosing. It's not ducking. It's not pretending that it's not there. It's actually letting it all in and saying, okay, out of the pain that I feel in this moment of grudge, I then, with awareness, choose in the next moment to wish myself well and wish the world well. That very lovely uh, form of metta that we just practiced in the last hour. Breath in, cherish yourself, and breath out, cherish everyone else. It's kinder. Sometimes people say to me, um, when I explain that uh, here at Spirit Raka, what we teach is um, fundamentally the practices of uh, mindfulness and metta, loving-kindness, and uh, vipassana as the principal practices that the Buddha taught. And then they say, how much of the day should you practice, should I or should one practice mindfulness? And how much should they practice uh, loving-kindness? I said, well, 100% of the day they should practice mindfulness. And 100% of the day should also practice loving-kindness. That doesn't mean that all day long one keeps um, phrases um, in the front of one's mind, or that all day long one breathes in a certain intention, out a certain intention, because there are lots of other things that require in our life and the world primary attention in order to be done safely and wisely and in a relationship way. But there isn't anything in the wider sense of it, apart from technical ways 
for cultivating mindfulness and caringness. In the largest way, there isn't a moment of our days in which we shouldn't be awake and paying attention. There isn't a moment in our days that we can't be, shouldn't be, relating to them ourselves and the moment who's ever there with as much compassion as we can. It's tremendously difficult to be a person. We have all this complex emotional equipment. We are constantly challenged by our lives to continue to keep a certain balance, to be able to see it clearly, to not fall asleep. Another word that inspires me very much in my practice, um, I like liberate and I like freedom, and I like wake up. I like the idea of being asleep less in my life. You know, normally in uh, ordinary talk, when we say to people, what time did you get up, wake up this morning? I'll say, oh, I woke up at 5.45, or I woke up at 5.15. I think sometimes if I tell the truth, I would say, I got out of my bed at 5.15, but maybe I woke up sometime later and then I fell asleep and I woke up and I fell asleep and I woke up and I fell asleep and I woke up. And it wouldn't mean that I took naps all day. <laughs> it would mean that from time to time I see more clearly and from time to time I don't. A friend of mine uh, tells a story of his uh, now grown up daughter who when she was three came uh, into um, her parents' bedroom early in the morning and said, Papa, when you get up in the morning, when you wake up in the morning, once you wake up, can you wake up more? (laughs) And I love that story because we can. I think what we're doing here is we are using this very simple practice form as um, a kind of gym for practicing waking up. There's not such a complicated life here to pay attention to. It's a level playing field. Very little that we need to attend to, except what's happening moment to moment, what's our response to it, what happens then, what happens then, what happens then. I really trust that if we pay attention, we get to see the pain that's part of life, we become compassionate, the suffering that's extra when we don't see, the fact that we make a difference, that everything is connected to everything. Here is my favorite Pablo Neruda poem. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. 
Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. The line that I like the most or that touches me the most in that whole poem Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. It's a huge sadness that we don't remember, all of us, that the whole world doesn't remember. That the nature of our hearts is actually different. That actually we are built to be loving organisms that when we're not frightened and confused and demoralized and overwhelmed, we are quite naturally friendly and compassionate. We rejoice in the good fortune of other people. We rest in that great spaciousness that knows that really everything that's happening is the result of everything that ever happened before. It's really awesome to think about how this whole life is strung together, how the, how the physical world works. I love to be here in February because the trees that bud and, and have blossoms are still bare, but they're beginning to push out so you can see where in another month they'll be flowering. And just walk around and say, this is amazing. Look how life pushes itself to recreate itself all the time. It's an amazing thing. Not what happens, but that it happens. I think it's the switch from when we are captivated with our small lives and really frightened into seeing only what's our own small story. And those occasions when really our vision opens up and we can see not our story, but the story that we will come and go, but everyone has come and gone before. And that's amazing. Everyone has come and gone. All of you look like who you look like because your parents look like who they look like and their parents and their parents and their parents all the way back forever and ever. And that's amazing. I think that when we think about the fact that from breath to breath we live here, from one breath to the next we stay alive. And the fact that I take this breath in, or the fact that I am breathed this breath, and the fact that this breathing happens breath after breath, and my life continues and yours as well, really is a reflection, really means that the trees and we are still in a good enough shape to give each other artificial respiration moment to moment because that's what we're doing. They are breathing out into us and we're breathing out back into them. We're sharing this oxygen and carbon dioxide cycle. We still have enough so that 
we're all still well enough to be doing this with each other. That's amazing. In the moments that the mind is a little bit calm, a little bit steady, which is really what we get through cherishing practice, which is really relaxing the heart practice, we get to see it's awesome to be alive. It's awesome. It's amazing. I really think that that vision, like seeing the earth, earth rise from the moon, that's the vision for me that buoys up my heart and allows me most of the time to be able to look at how much pain there is in the world and most of the time to feel I have the heart to face it. I think we need to have both. I think we need to have the vision that it's amazing. It's a lawful, just, amazing cosmos where every single thing matters, including every single thing that every one of us does. That is such a mandate to paying attention. Even not doing makes a difference so that every moment is a time where how we are in that moment makes a difference. As we sit here, not in the worldly sense of the way doing anything, because we're here, in every moment that our heart radiates out, cherishing to all beings, I believe we change the fabric of the whole cosmos in every moment that we are making a loving feeling, in every moment that our vision is turned out from ourselves out here in well-wishing. I like to think that we are balancing the great cosmic equation of love in the universe and responding to that question of, that someone asked the Dalai Lama, is there more love in the world now? And he said, I think so. I hope so. And I very much think that what we do here together is a direct contributor to it. I'd like to uh, finish by reading you a, uh, a prayer and a blessing. It's actually a blessing that uh, Norm Fisher, who is uh, the abbot of uh, Zen Center, wrote for um, reciting before a meal. But I changed it from uh, a blessing. I changed a few words of it, so with recognition to Norm that I have changed his grace. I want to talk about his line, his grace begins, as we make ready to eat this food. I want to talk about as we make ready to do this practice together for the next two weeks or four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, recognizing that it's taken our whole lives for each of us, for however long we're here to get here. Everything that happened to us had to happen for us to be here. And everything that happened to us depended, depends on everything that ever happened. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. Our being here is a great karmic gift of the whole world forever and ever. And this is an awareness coming out of a thank you of what we might do with that. As we dedicate ourselves to this practice, 
we remember with gratitude the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all turning in the wheel of living and dying, whose joyful exertion, not separate from ours, have kept us alive until this day. May we, with the blessing of this opportunity to practice, join our hearts to the one heart of the world in awareness and love, and may we, together with everyone, realize the path of awakening and never stop making effort for the benefit of others. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 5, 2000. It is an offering of the 